0: Section 2 of The Science History of the Universe, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 3. Edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Physics, Chapter 1, An Analysis of Matter, Part 2. Many and various definitions of matter have been made in the course of scientific history. It has been described, for example, as that which occupies space, or as the receptacle of energy, or again as the permanent possibility of sensation. All these may be brought under one of two general heads. Either matter must be defined, as Bacon defined it, in terms of its properties, or it must be defined in terms of its coexistent phenomenon force it is clear that the physical world may be comprehended within the limits of these two notions force and matter force is that which acts upon matter matter is that by which man apprehends force force is by no means such a vague and various thing as is sometimes supposed there is today a very general tendency among scientific writers to endeavor to reduce all force to a single underlying principle the establishment of the theory of the conservation of energy, the ready transmutation in everyday experience of various forms of force, such as the conversion of sound into electricity and of the latter into heat, light, motion, or chemical energy, the advances in the study of radioactivity, and the general acceptance of the kinetic theory of gases, all point to an ultimate unification under some one great principle of the various forms of force. Gravity alone seems incapable of classification with other forces, and this is due to its independence of any quality but mass. Temperature will affect the conductivity of an electric wire, solution is greatly influenced by pressure, light has a determinative effect upon physical life as upon many chemical reactions, but gravity is not affected by these conditions of temperature or of the intervening medium. Its nature is utterly unknown. Electricity has long been held to be a form of force; it acts upon matter to change its condition. It is not an object of sense in a current-carrying wire or a charged Leyden jar. It seems to be typical of what is popularly understood by the name force. Yet the study of the cathode rays by Sir William Crookes and his great co-workers in this field of research, Roentgen, Hertz. Rutherford, and others whose names are perhaps even more familiar, has made it apparent that something closely resembling material particles are actually discharged from the cathode or negative pole of an electric conductor when the current passes. So strong, indeed, is the accepted belief that the nature of electricity is material rather than dynamic, that a distinguished American chemist recently formulated the thesis that electricity is one of the elements. To obtain a clear understanding of the most modern theories with regard to the nature of matter, a brief description of the apparatus used by investigators is inevitable. Imagine an electric bulb, or oval vessel of glass. In this are placed two electrodes, which may be either metallic points or bulbs, or, in short, any poles separated by smaller or greater intervals, and charged with electricity. Their electrification will be maintained, for example, by placing them in connection with the terminals of an electric current of high voltage. A short tube provided with a stopcock allows the bulb to be exhausted of air. When the electric tension passes a certain limit, a current is established. If the vacuum is maintained at something less than a thousandth of an atmosphere, this current appears as a soft rose-colored glow passing within the bulb from the positive to the negative pole Sir so william crookes pushed the exhaustion of air in his experiments to a prodigious degree the pressure being only one millionth of an atmosphere concerning crookes experiments m a daster writes the english scientist claimed that when exhausted at this point the residue no longer has the properties of ordinary gas According to him, it is hypergas as different from the true gaseous state as the latter is from the liquid state and forming a fourth condition of matter following the solid, the liquid, and the gas proper. This he called radiant matter. Crookes desired to determine the nature of this fourth state of matter in reality, the gas rarefied to the millionth of an atmosphere has not acquired by this fact alone an entirely new character but it has acquired it most certainly when electrification is added to the rarefaction, and it is then that it constitutes the emanation or the cathode ray. The vacuum must not be pushed too far. If one goes beyond the millionth of an atmosphere, and the perfection of mechanism allows going much further than that, the gaseous residue cannot be electrified. Electricity will not pass through. There is no longer a current. The electric force is incapable of penetrating absolute vacuum. The importance of this principle is very great from the theoretical point of view. It furnishes, in fact, a new test for matter. But in Crookes's tube, in which the vacuum has been pushed to one millionth, the current behaves itself rather differently from what it does in the tubes where the rarefaction is less. The point of the current has lost much of its brilliancy. It no longer appears as an uncertain glow wavering, striated, of a hue intermediate between rose and violet. All the remainder of the interior of the bulb now remains dark. The electricity passes as before between the positive electrode and the cathode or negative pole. The principal flow has been joined by a secondary one. From all points of the tube the positive currents are directed towards the cathode and go to reinforce the principal current. These positive charges, which descend from all points of the exterior, form the counterpart of the negative charges, which can be seen fixed in the cathode rays. Their existence, their development, their circulation result in consequence from the existence, the development, and the inverse circulation of the negative electricity that carries with it the cathode ray. Such is the cathode efflux. It is composed of the current directed toward the positive electrode and of secondary currents directed from all parts of the recipient toward the cathode. This cathode afflux has, besides, the character and the properties that physicists and chemists attribute to the electric current. It touches directly the cathode. The afflux, however, is in fact perfectly distinct in every respect from the cathode radiation which follows it. The latter is formed of a pencil of rays perpendicular to the surface of the cathode. It traverses the tube in a perfectly straight line without being disturbed by the rays flowing toward the cathode in an opposite direction, of which we have just been speaking. It passes by them and through them unchecked. This new pencil, implanted perpendicularly on the cathode, is not luminous. It is not directly visible. It forms a dark spot in the Crookes tube. It would entirely escape observation if it did not excite a peculiar fluorescence opposite to the cathode at the points where it meets the sides of the tube the material of the glass becomes illuminated at these points and presents a luminous brilliant spot of green color crux conceived the idea of arranging in the interior of the tube in the path of the pencil rays between the cathode and the wall a cross of aluminum he then saw outlined against the clear fluorescent background the exact silhouette of the cross. If the cathode is a mirror with spherical, concave surface, the perpendicular lines at the surface form a conical pencil and converge toward a focus. The effects peculiar to cathode rays are magnified by this concentration in the same manner that the effects of luminous rays are increased in the focus of a lens. In this manner, Crookes was able to show the heating action of his supposed radiant matter, that is to say, of cathode rays. He succeeded in fusing, at one of these foci, not only glass, but a wire of iridium-platinum, an operation which requires a temperature of more than 2,000 degrees. When the cathode rays are reflected from a sheet of platinum within the tube, the marvelous phenomena of X-rays, or roentgen rays, are produced. These rays are different in character from the cathode rays in that they pass readily through wood, flesh, cardboard, and even thin sheets of metal. Their serviceability in locating and determining the nature of a fracture in a bone is too well known to need comment. The cathode projectile does not depend upon the nature of the cathode. It has been proved to be composed of hydrogen. It has its origin necessarily in the breaking up of an atom of hydrogen. Villard showed that the cathode rays exhibit the spectrum of hydrogen, and if every trace of this gas is removed, the cathode emission is suddenly suppressed. Hydrogen, observes M. Dastre, in the article quoted above, instead of being the final expression of simplicity and of lightness, as chemists believe, appears to be a quite complex edifice and rather heavy, since the current of the Crookes tube removes from the stones which represent it but the thousandth part of its mass. These stones are the fragments of atoms, or the atomic corpuscles, of J. J. Thomson. The atom is no longer indivisible. The infinitesimal mass of an atom is a fact sometimes lost sight of in discussing the constitution of matter. It has been estimated from experimentation with colored solutions of a known concentrate that the weight of an atom of hydrogen is less than... Nineteen point zero zero eight times ten to the negative thirteenth ounce and its diameter is less than two times ten to the negative ninth inches following this line of inquiry as to the ultimate constitution of matter there has recently appeared an article by dr w d horn which reads in part as follows from considerations based partly on very elaborate mathematical calculations it is now maintained that matter is composed of electricity and nothing else. Electricity here is not considered as a form of energy any more than water is a form of energy, but as a vehicle of energy, which can be moved from place to place and whose energy must be in the form of motion or of strain. In motion it constitutes current and magnetism, under strain it constitutes charge, and in vibration it constitutes light continuing the same writer says sir oliver lodge describes the atom of matter as constituted of an individualized mass of positive electricity diffused uniformly over a space the size of an atom perhaps spherical in shape and about one two hundred millionth of an inch in diameter throughout this small spherical shape some eight hundred minute particles of negative electricity all exactly alike are supposed to be scattered flying vigorously about, each repelling every other and yet all contained within their orbits by the mass of positive electricity. The positive electricity is very much attenuated and constitutes perhaps only about 1% of the mass of the atom, while the negative electrons are correspondingly dense and so inconceivably small that the 800 are less crowded in their atom than are the planets in the solar system. Atoms of different kinds of matter are supposed to be constructed in the same general manner and of the same kind of electrons, but the number of electrons in an atom are proportional to the atomic weight of the element. Thus oxygen would have 16 times as many electrons in its atom as has hydrogen. When the crowding becomes excessive, as in the very heavy atoms of uranium, the heaviest substance known, thorium and radium, being atomic weights well over 200, the atoms become radioactive probably due to numerous collisions between the electrons, some of which are being constantly shot away. This perspicuous summary of the so-called electron theory is highly suggestive of the fundamental unity of force and matter. Moreover, the electron theory seems, so far, most in accord with the results of recent investigation into the physical basis of the material universe. Curiously enough, the medieval alchemists who, next after the Greeks, attempted to establish an orderly classification of the elements, actually anticipated one of the most modern theories regarding the properties of matter. They believed in the philosopher's stone, which, if it could but be discovered, would make possible the transformation of any or all of the baser metals into gold. Recent investigation has shown that something like a true philosopher's stone actually exists, and is known in the world today it is a well accepted belief that the earth in its passage through space gathers up constantly minute quantities of gas helium so called because its spectrum was first found in the analysis of light from the sun and before the discovery of the element in the terrestrial atmosphere the theory has lately been advanced that under the influence of helium the nobler metals silver and gold are slowly disintegrating and their electrons recombining through immense periods of time to form the baser metals, iron, copper, tin, zinc, etc. In a discussion of modern views on the matter, Sir Oliver Lodge observed that the facts recorded in connection with the study of radioactivity constituted a phenomenon quite new in the history of the world. No one, he says, hitherto has observed the transition from one form of matter to another, though throughout the Middle Ages such a transmutation was looked for the evolution of matter likewise has been suspected by a few chemists of genius it was perceived on the strength of mendeleev's law the periodic law that the elements form a kind of family or a related series and it was surmised that possibly the barriers between one species and the next were not absolutely infrangible but that temporary transitional forms might occur all this was speculation but here in radioactive matter, the process appears to be going on before our eyes. End of chapter one.